Welcome to the Gulf Coast Business Advocate, where startups, growing businesses, or established companies share what makes their enterprise unique. Your host, Jim Grant, will pull back the curtain to reveal tools and principles for success, as well as expose the trials and tribulations that many entrepreneurs face while building a business in the South. Find out why people love living and doing business on the Gulf Coast. And now, your host of the coast, Jim Grant. Hello, Gulf Coast, and those of you wanting to visit, work, or just find out what we love about living and working here on the Gulf, thank you for checking out today's episode. My guest today is a man who came to the Gulf on vacation to visit Destin, Florida at the age of 15. Before the vacation was over, he decided he wanted to stay, so he hitchhiked up and down the uh, Gulf and uh, found his first job at a place called Jack Tar Beach House. Uh, he moved on from there to become the executive VP at Family Inns. He leveraged that into founding Innisfree Hotels in 1985. Innisfree is now 2,000-plus homes, 1,000-plus employees, and continuing to grow. Julian McQueen. Julian, welcome to the show, and uh, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for asking. I'm, I am shocked and amazed and impressed that you have all that background already. I, I don't think there's anything left to say. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, thanks for being here. And uh, <laughs> well, listen, so you came here at 15. What impressed you? What'd you love about it? You know, I'm from Birmingham and my parents had a, a cottage on the harbor in Destin and they bought the cottage. My great grandfather bought the cottage in 1933. So I grew up on the Destin Harbor with my little John boat with a five horsepower motor on it, and I would leave in the morning. I wouldn't come back until dinner, and it was just you know it was a place where I went to, and I, I was independent, and I could you know be in the water, and it was just it was just heaven on earth. So when I was 15, I asked my parents you know if I could stay when they went back home to Birmingham, and they said, well if you get a job you can stay, and uh, that was that kind of shocked and pleased me at the same time. So like you said earlier, I hitchhiked down the road and found a place that hired me as a busboy and then gave me a, a bed to sleep on. And uh, the whole hotel was run by college kids. It was, you know, only open the summertime. And so I became, I, I grew up real fast in that summer and uh, became kind of like the mascot of all these college kids and came back the next year and became a waiter and the next year dining room manager at 17. And Got a got a good reference from that to, uh, to when I went to school in Mobile at the University of South Alabama and did the night audit from 11 at night to 7 in the morning and uh, put myself through school in the hotel business. So by the time I graduated with a degree in psychology, I had a eight years of hotel experience. <laughs> wow, that's pretty interesting. What did, you know, I, I could see, I was going to ask you what you loved about it, but I think you had a lot of interaction and, you know, being the... Uh, you know, I guess the mascot you said of the uh, college kids and everything, that was probably uh, uh, a lot of fun for you. It was amazing. You know, we really played hard. I didn't know how hard you could play until I met those guys. And uh, <laughs> uh, But we played really, really hard, and it worked really, really hard. Just had a great time doing it. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, one of those things that kind of becomes part of your cellular memory is, you know, those great times as a kid, and, and in my case, my great times was when I was working. That's awesome. That's awesome. You also, um, I, I saw in an earlier interview a couple of years ago that you'd take that tip money and go uh, go take flying lessons. 
Exactly. Oh, that's great. You've done great research. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. I, um, Destin Airport was giving lessons for $16 an hour, and I was wow. 16, so I got I got my nine hours in, and I got my pilot's license, my student license, and there's a whole nother story that goes with that about uh, why you should not give 16-year-olds pilot license um, <laughs> that I'll save for another time. <laughs> All right. We'll talk about that another time. What are you flying now? Um, you know, my favorite airplane that I fly now is a Grumman Widgeon. It was built in 1943, so it's over 70 years old. It's a classic flying boat, same same airplane that was in the television series Fantasy Island. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's beautiful. I, I bought it in England um, and flew it over the Atlantic to uh, using a handheld GPS in November, freezing because it had no no heater in it. And um, you know, I fixed it up like an old in in the style of a 1930s Chris Craft with great teak leather and and wood and stuff. And it's I think the greatest airplane ever ever made for me. And then the other airplane I've got is a is a Phenom 100, which is a kind of an entry level jet that you can fly single pilot. And uh, so that's uh, actually I'm spending a little more time in that these days than I am the widgets. But so one goes high and fast, and I call it a time machine, and the other one is just pure fun, where I can land in any lake or river and get a cheeseburger on the way to somewhere else. That's awesome. The uh, the widget sounds like a lot of fun. I, uh, is there a picture of that in the hangar at the um, on the Jet Center site? Yeah, actually, uh, and it's widget like a like the duck. Widget, gotcha. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, there were th- there were four airplanes that Grumman built in the forties, uh, starting with the smallest being the widget, then the Goose, then the Mallard, and then the Albatross. And uh, Jimmy Buffett, you know, when he starts his book off, a pirate turns fifty, talks about the widget he was flying and how he turned it over and you know that uh it's just a very difficult airplane on the water you've got about four degrees of incidence to play with and if you don't hit the water just right you can get in your you get you get real busy in a hurry so it's it really tests your flying skills every time you put it on the water that's great. I've got a little bit of uh, um, experience with planes and stuff. I used to, uh, my dad and my uncle used to go to the EAA fly-in yeah. in spring, when it was in Springfield, Illinois. And then when it moved to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, we used to go up there every year. So saw a lot of different cool planes and stuff. And they had some of the uh, those type of uh, flying boats, I guess. Yes, yeah, um, flying widgeon, boat, yeah. like the widgeons up there. And uh, so I've seen a lot of that stuff. It's it's pretty cool. I never learned to fly. I've jumped out of airplanes before, but I haven't learned to fly yet. So well, I, I don't know if that's in my future or not. I've jumped out of out of them as well. And now I actually own a uh, part of an airline, a uh, uh, seaplane airline up in British Columbia. But what we do is, you know, we live part time in British Columbia, and we own this island uh, called Salt Spring Island between Vancouver and Victoria. And so. Uh, my idea of a, of a great time is putting my folding bike bike in the back of the widget and and it takes three days to get up there and you know I, I stop in these random places along the way and and unfold my bicycle and bicycle into town and kind of get a slice of of Americana on the way up and then get up there and I spend my days exploring up in these glacier lakes that really you just can't get to unless you've got a some kind of airplane that floats and it's just I've seen some amazing things all the way up to the Aleutian Islands. Wow, that sounds pretty incredible. I've spent a little bit of time up there in uh, British Columbia, 
my parents loved the mountains. I lived in Denver for 24 years, so I spent a lot of time in the Rockies and, you know, in British Columbia, probably, um, I think it's British Columbia, but Lake Louise and uh, Glacier National Park. Yeah, that's on the way. Um, that's Alberta, or, right next yeah. door. Yeah. Okay, Alberta, right. It's beautiful up there, to say the least, anyway. Exactly. Well, listen, uh, quickly, um, you said we uh, live up there uh, part-time in British Columbia. You uh, have a wife, Kim, that you've been married to for 40-plus years, two kids and two grandkids. That's right. Um, I don't have any grandkids yet, but I'm on, I'm on the same boat with two kids. The family's rewarding, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, they tell you that if you knew grandkids were going to be so much fun, you would have them first. <laughs> and it's true. That's what it's I hear. Just, it's just great. You know, and my, my grandson and I get in the widget and we fly around and just have a ball. He's a lucky boy. How old is he? He's 10 and he, um, he thinks I'm, I'm a cool grandfather. So I'm, I'm going to milk that as long as I can. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let's get a little bit back to how uh, Innisfree came to be. Do you remember what the moment was that you decided that you wanted to quit working in the hospitality industry and become an entrepreneur and build your own brand and dream? I do remember it very clearly. I Actually, it's my wife that encouraged me to do something um, more entrepreneurial. And it, it was, uh, it, you know, I was working for Hyatt Corporation at the time when we first got married. And um, it was very clear to her that that was not necessarily the life that she wanted to have, uh, working for a large corporation and moving from, one assignment to the next, and and I'd always had kind of the entrepreneurial bug, and um, even when I was a sales manager at the Hyatt Regency in Knoxville, I started a side business with a hot air balloon, and that was really my first entrepreneurial effort, and uh, it was just a big eye-opener to me to, to try to go out and find financing for a hot air balloon and, and to set up a business and, you know, make payroll and all the stuff that goes along with Right. And I just loved it. I love the freedom that it gave me and the fact that, you know, money is really another symbol of freedom, you know, that you can look at it that way and, and not live for it and, and use it for good things. It it really is a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's fairly unlimited what you can do with it. It's just how much you want to work and how tenacious you are in that process. Yeah, I think it is unlimited, and um, I've got a question for you down the line, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, also, along with the hotels, uh, you've got a jet center out at Pensacola Regional Airport. Yeah, you know, from day one, I've been I've been trying to incorporate my love for flying into business and starting off with the hot air balloon business. Another business uh, my brother and I got into because we were trying to justify airplanes is uh, flying live lobsters <laughs> in from Maine. And uh, we thought, you know, if we could set up a, you know, a, a supply chain of live lobsters, then then we could probably, you know, get an airplane, and that would all kind of work together. So, you know, fast forward 35 years later, I'm essentially a, in the real estate business. Um, hotels are just another form of real estate, and uh, we started getting into the condo market, and um, we I've built three condominiums project so far, but I, we, I built a real large one in Gulf Shores, and this was in the 19, early 2000s, and it was just, it seemed like it was no end in sight. You could just build it, and they would come. So I thought I was going to be a zillionaire, so I thought, you know, why don't I just start up a private jet center, and I can collect World War II airplanes and fix them up, and, and it would be great. So um, 
this whole period of irrational exuberance that we were all feeling at the time, thinking that there was, you know, there was no end to it. Um, that's what I decided to do with my money. And uh, that came to an abrupt halt when the bubble popped in the real estate market. And I had to change the purpose of the industry jet center to a, a full service FBO or full service general aviation facility. And uh, so we did that. We changed it to a, a very high end jet center that catered to the turbine market and um, turns out that that's uh, that's uh, that's a business that really should be left to the professionals so that do it full-time not part-time so we recently merged right. we just merged our, that business with Pensacola Aviation and uh, they are going to continue to operate it as industry jet center and uh, continue to cater to this you know high-end market and kind of divide the uh, the use of their facility for, you know, more uh, common general aviation airplanes and then use the industry jet center for the high-end market. That sounds like a nice merger. It's going to be uh, good for the airport out there and for Pensacola and the Gulf here in general. I think so. I, it'll give uh, some diversity to what Pensacola has to offer. And, and I'm proud that the industry jet center name will still be out there and It'll still represent the super high level of service that we started. That's great. As I was doing a little research to get ready for uh, talking to you and talking about the Jet Center and that, my producer for the show here, Drew Pemberton, um, his fiance Kim, uh, worked for you, uh, worked at the Jet Center back in the day. Yeah, I remember Kim. She was great. Where is she? She's uh, she's here in Pensacola. She's uh, working out at uh, Crabs, uh, managing out there. Yeah, okay. And uh, I think she and Drew are getting married uh, this fall. <laughs> cool. So, no, she was great. Yeah. She was early on. She was, you know, she set the standard back then. That was she was a great fit for us. Drew will be glad to hear yeah. that that you uh, speak so highly of yeah. her. You know, you have something else special about the Jet Center out there. Somebody or that greets everybody that comes out there, Sadie. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Sadie is our hanger dog. Sadie's the only person that got a, a Christmas card from Sarah Palin. She, uh, <laughs> she's got her own airport pass. She's got her headset and her, her flying goggles and a pass to get out on the ramp for security. And she's got her own Facebook page. She's, uh, you know, she drives a lot of business. <laughs> <laughs> to the Jet Center. It's been great. I'll bet you they talk about her and look forward to seeing her every time they come through, I'm sure. No, everybody stops what they're doing. All these big, important, you know, affluent people stop everything they're doing. And what looks to be a big, important meeting and a big rush and a big deadline, all of a sudden stop. And they want to get their picture made with Sadie. It's just hilarious. That's great. You know, they say the little things make the difference, and it's the little things that matter. And that's you wouldn't think it's that big a deal, but that's something that makes the industry Jet Center special. Well, it kind of you know, fits perfectly in our philosophy to have fun. You know, we when we started industry, that was one of our mantras is that, you know, if you're spending 80% of your waking hours at work, then you should be having fun doing it. And it doesn't mean right. you, you're, you're not professional. It doesn't mean you don't make a pile of money. It just means that you enjoy your, what you're doing. Right. Life is way, way too short to, you know, spend that kind of time not doing something that you love. So we really do preach that at industry. Well, I think sometimes it takes some of us a, a long time to learn. I think we know we need to be doing something we love, but we kind of let the trying to be in control of things we don't have any control over and worry about those things uh, um, get us off course sometimes. And uh, if you can just remember to uh, have fun and let things happen, it'll go that way for exactly. you. Exactly. Hey, uh, you, I'm a big fan of Covey and the seven habits of highly successful people. 
And one of the things he talks about in his book is win-win, or win-win-win, if you will, based on the parties involved. You have developed a philosophy called the triple bottom line business model that you incorporate within us free and with the Jet Center and your businesses. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's not something that I started. It's actually a, a worldwide UNESCO-sponsored philosophy of how all businesses should be run. And that is, if you focus on the people, the planet, then the profit comes. So that's the three P's, the, you know, the triple bottom line. You measure your bottom line by how you treat people. You measure your bottom line on how you treat the planet. And then, of course, always the P&L, the bottom line, the profit of, of the financial side is what keeps it going. So, you know, we practice that at, at Innisfree. We, we have a long way to go before we are doing it well. Uh, in terms of some of the things we're doing environmentally, uh, but we're working at it. It's part of our philosophy and something we talk about every time we every time we meet with management and look at you know our mission statement. It's it's central to how we want to behave as good corporate citizens. That's uh, you know this podcast is I started it to help entrepreneurs and business owners and everything to be able to learn from. Uh, successful people out on the Gulf Coast that have run businesses out here. And I think that's something that a lot of people could incorporate to their startup or to their business that they have right now to uh, to be more uh, profitable and, and just to be um, happier and a better business all around. It's, you know, it's not, it's not a huge revelation. To me, it's incredibly practical. When I look at the evolution of business from, you know, the post-industrial revolution and, you know, the war mentality of top-down management and and you start looking at this philosophy that I walked into in the 70s when I got into the workforce was that you had essentially two sides to yourself. One was the professional side and the other was the personal side. And I was shocked to see how people behaved one way at work and another way when they were with their family and friends. And, you know, when Kim and I started Innisfree Hotels, we, we were very clear in our thinking that we wanted to not have this schizophrenic experience where you know, you were one person at work and a different person at home. And to the degree that we practice that, I think we build loyalty. You know, we lower stress. We have happier people that are, are truly authentic uh, in who they are. And and what happens eventually is once you put that together and you make it part of who you are as a, as a corporate culture, you know, over the years, you know, we've got 1,700 people now and over the years, it actually creates almost a separate organism, and the organism rejects those people that are not authentic, you know, that don't believe in these principles. So it's, it becomes self-policing. It's no longer up to me or senior management to weed these folks out. The, they, they naturally are rejected. It's, it's a very cool thing to watch. Yeah, that sounds like that. I hope you guys that are listening out there uh, listen to that. If you missed any of it, go back and listen to it again because uh... – I think that makes a lot of sense, and it is very. It just makes it just is common sense to do it that way. So um, that's really great. Hey, um, you, I believe, practice, uh, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I think I am the Baha'i faith. That's right. That's correct. And you, um, something I've learned, and I believe today, it, I think I was kind of introduced to this back in the '90s, but it takes you a little bit to uh, to have some faith and believe. But if you open your mind to the universe, it will provide for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I'm, it certainly is consistent with the Baha'i teachings. Whether that is a Baha'i teaching or not, I'm not quite sure. But 
kind of the adage that Baha'is do practice is that you kind of walk this mystical path, but you do it with practical feet. And that's, you know, that is something that I took to heart when I became a Baha'i in, in uh, college when I was studying religion. And, and that made a lot of sense to me because, you know, life is greater than the physical universe around us. We all know that. We all have a belief system, most people do, that uh, believes in right. a higher, you know, a higher source. And it's always been a kind of a practice of mine and my wife that, you know, we open ourselves up to that, that higher source in, in whatever form it takes. And really, it's, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of uh, realizing that we are all spiritual beings and that there are other influences to our lives that will come to play, into play, if we open ourselves up to it. So I'm, I'm a very big believer that, you know, the universe is fundamentally there to take care of you, that if you do good things, good things will happen to you, and that if you open yourself up to that possibility and look at the world in the, in the view of abundance and not scarcity, that these things will start to happen. This What appears to be a, a very serendipitous occurrence is actually part of a larger plan. And, you know, without getting super philosophical about it, it's, you know, that's in very simple terms is what, what I do believe in and, and trying to practice it. And what happens is that, you know, these seemingly disruptive life experiences that bump into your plan actually turn into a larger plan. <laughs> they actually are right. part of something that, you know, is greater than you are. And so, you know, real estate, I also I often talk about the zen of real estate <laughs> because real estate, you know, is, is such a long-term play that, you know, it's not like the stock market that changes on a whim or a, an emotion or a world event and all of a sudden your values plummet. You know, real estate is kind of a slow, long, and, you know, when I'm going out after a property or I'm trying to build a hotel or something and, and things start getting in my way of my plan, I really try to step back and try to understand if, if this is not just part of a larger plan. And I believe, and I, I truly believe this, that it, it gives me more peace, lowers my stress, because I know that I'm fundamentally not in control at the end of the day. Right. You know, I'm glad you uh, mentioned focusing or paying attention to abundance instead of scarcity. For a long time, I, you know, I, I believe that Things are provided for you if you think about it and, and believe and are open to it. And I always believed that everything was, I kind of took the philosophy that everything was going to be okay. No matter what happened, you know, that bump in the road or that dead end you hit or whatever, that everything was going to be okay. And you know what I got for believing that everything was going to be okay? Everything was okay. <laughs> and that's it. You know, so so finally, you know, I'm doing that same thing now. And it's within the last couple of years coming back to Pensacola, starting this podcast and the other things I'm doing is and trying to focus on the abundance. And uh, I'm seeing it start to work that way. So, again, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. A couple more things before I uh, let you go. Do you remember the most challenging time you had building industry? Uh, you know, there's so many. Uh, you know, in the very beginning, I made a deal with my mentor that I would basically provide sweat equity into projects. And I, over five years, ended up building five hotels and having a little piece of each one that I ended up trading for one hotel. And I remember that being 
the most challenging part that, that you know trying to break away from a paycheck into truly being dependent on your savvy of navigating the world in the field of entrepreneurship and that was super scary for me i mean it really does take a spouse that's willing to hang in there with you and not blame you for not having the greatest judgment in the world uh, anyway <laughs> But that was probably the most scary part, you know, and then more recently in the, you know, I, I talk about, you know, how I've been through three cycles and that bankers should kiss me on the mouth because I've survived. And the idea of, you know, starting with in this area with with Ivan in 04, followed by Katrina in 05, and then followed by the bubble bursting in, in, uh, in real estate in 06 and 07, and then followed by a worldwide recession in 08, 09, and, and then coming, starting to come out of it in 10, where, you know, we're, we're starting to see double-digit increases and we, we feel it coming back. And then, bam, you get a BP oil spill that swirls around the Gulf of Mexico and decides to land right square in the center of where we have hotels. It was just it was just like right. a twilight zone moment where the phones went dead, internet went down, everything went dead. It was like, uh, and if you were here, you, you could walk on on the beach on the Fourth of July here in Pensacola Beach, and there was you know two or three people in there, not the tens of thousands. It was just scary. So coming out of that and surviving that, I think was my most recent scary moment. That's quite a few years that you had to deal yeah. with that too. Yeah, it was. There's a lot of people, you know, that are not as blessed as I am, and it's just I've got such great people that have been with me for ten, twenty, twenty-five years. That, you know, everybody pulled together and figured it out. It was difficult, but it also kind of showed who we were that we could make it through. That's great. What about the most rewarding? Is there a rewarding moment or something that um, really made you proud, or um, where you really knew you were glad that you uh, took the step to uh, do your own thing? Probably the one that stands out as you ask that question is, in 1995, I decided to go and volunteer uh, for three years in Israel at the Baha'i World Center and run their real estate and their physical plan of the Baha'i, uh, the Baha'i Center in, in Haifa. And I could never have done that as an employee. You know, it took the cooperation of all my lenders. I had uh, several hotels then, but not, you know, not as many as we have today. But they, you know, they allowed me to go and volunteer and, and serve for three years in Israel. And that was probably the most rewarding moment when I realized I could not have done that if I was working as an employee for somebody. That was really something I, that was unique. Well, you know, that's that's a great answer to hear. Um, the rewards aren't always the business you've built and the money that you're making, but they come from in unexpected ways and in unexpected areas. And uh um, being able to do that had to be uh, incredible. Uh, it, was, it was the best and worst time. <laughs> it was. Uh, it, there's lots <laughs> of things to go with that too, and you know the whole idea of of testing difficulties being given to you to prove your if you if you truly believe in your principles. So all that hit at the same time. And just as a small aside, you know the day we the day literally the day we landed in Israel to start this great volunteer work was the first day that uh, Opal came and destroyed three, took the roof off of three hotels. And then we thought, well, that's that's awkward. And then 60 days later, Aaron came, and it flooded the hotel. So it was like a one-two punch. All this preparation <laughs> we had made to cover the un, unexpected thing, it was a perfect, literally the perfect storm. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, you, you've had your uh, you've dealt with yeah. every storm. We're we're the we're the poster <laughs> child of disaster. You know, it's, it's uh, if you Google me, you'll see me all over. You know, Bloomberg and and MSNBC and even Hardball, even Al Jazeera interviewed me during the um, the oil spill. I was the poster boy of disaster. It's amazing to see what we've been able to survive. Uh, definitely amazing. We've talked about a lot of things. What advice do you have for a young or new uh, entrepreneur, new business owner? Um, I thought about that a little bit the other day. And, um, and what I'm continuing to find out is that people rarely listen. And I, I, I really believe that, that that is probably one of the key elements of success. And also realizing that it's not the answer, but the question that you ask that gets you to that point of resolution. So, you know, I think when I started out, I thought I had to be the smartest guy in the room. And uh, it turns out I don't have to be. I just have to find the best question to ask. And once you kind of let go of that and you, and you truly listen and you try to, try to put yourself in the position of the other person, and combining that, opening it up to infinite possibilities and looking at the world as from the view of, of abundance and not scarcity. Those you know, those are kind of the combinations I think that if you if you can truly instill those kind of beliefs and those kind of practices, I think that'll lead you a long way down the road. That's uh, great advice. I hope everybody's listening to that and is gonna start changing their thinking if you don't to abundance. Um, you recently donated to the University of West Florida. Yeah, we started the McQueen School of Hospitality, and this is something that I was approached to think about a few years ago. And uh, you know, my wife is a graduate of UWF and their undergraduate and master's program, and it's such an amazing institution to have here in Pensacola that we wanted to give something back. And we thought, you know, what would be better than to to begin a school of hospitality out there and, and have some input on how that program was put together. So we funded this, uh, this school and, and now we're working with the students there with, uh, we do lectures out there for the students and we have them in turn with industry hotels and it's a super relationship. And, and the hope there was that this would be the beginning of other, other businesses to do the same thing in their fields. You know, whether it's engineering or medical side or whatever the other different schools of uh, are out there, that other other businesses would step up and make that vital connection between the academic and the businesses here in Pensacola. You know, uh, that ties into, I was talking yesterday with Bill Ween yeah. over at IMS, and he's involved with technology and working with UWF so that we can actually start producing uh, students that graduate and they come out, start providing jobs for the uh, community, and that they really get something out of their well, education. Bill Wayne, you mentioned him. He, he is one of the thought leaders here in Pensacola, and whatever he does or says is something I want to follow and do too. Well, that being said, I think it's uh, Innovation Coast is something people can check out online and see what he's doing. And uh, um, he t was talking to me about that yesterday, and uh, I think I'm going to get involved with that. Well, I want to wrap this up and let you get on with your day. Last question. You fell in love with the golf when you used to come here on vacation. What do you love about it now that's different than when you were 16? Uh, not not a lot of difference, frankly. I, you know, when I, my wife and I travel a lot, and we've been all over the world, and I cannot tell you how peaceful it is to me and to her to come back over the three-mile bridge and, and drive into Gulf Breeze and Pensacola Beach and realize just what an amazing quality of life we have here. 
this is heaven right here. And we, you know, and I've always thought that about the beach, but I think it's a deeper, uh, and not just the beach, but the beach community and Pensacola and the history and, and the sense of community that we have here. It's, uh, it's a deeper feeling of uh, appreciation that, you know, the simplicity of life here and the quality of life here is really unique. You know, we've lived in different places and, and still travel all over the world. And every time we come back here, we, you know, we're excited about it because we know, you know, of the quality of life we have here is, is truly, truly unique. Well, I think the sense of community here is special. That uh, is special. I tell everybody that, uh, you know, I grew up in Michigan, spent 22 years there. I was in Denver for 24 years, had the opportunity to come to Pensacola. I lived here for four years, then went to Baltimore for five years and always wanted to come back. I knew I was coming back when I left. But I've been back now a little over a year. So out of 57, I've been in Pensacola, um, Gulf Breeze, living out on the beach um, for about five of it. And uh, this is definitely home for me. I love it. It is a little piece of heaven. Amen. Here. Right on. Well, that's a good way to wrap it up. Uh, Julian, hey, I really appreciate uh, taking the time today to talk with me and uh, for our listeners. I'm looking forward to talking again down the road. Um, you guys can go to uh, com and uh, check out the hotels and find one to stay at. Um, hopefully some of you are out of town or listening and get a chance to come stay at uh, Innisfree Hotels. And uh, again, Julian, thanks for being here, and I Thank really you. enjoyed talking with you. Okay, Gulf Coast, I hope you enjoyed Julian's interview as much as I did doing it. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review along with your comments. And remember... Business is about making an impact, and you can't make an impact if no one knows you exist. I'm Jim Grant, and I am your Gulf Coast Business Advocate.